So welcome to the seventh in our series of COVID-19 podcasts. This topic of this podcast is rather weirdly me and the Encephalitis Society. So on that note, I'm going to introduce, welcome and hand over to one of my favourite people, Guardian journalist, author, Encephalitis survivor and all-round legend, Simon Hattonstone. Hi everyone. Um, you'll have to excuse my voice because I've had a weird thing going on, um, but it's my huge pleasure to introduce someone to you who might be slightly familiar, even with the pink hair, which is looking fab if I might say so. Uh, so Ava, as you probably know, is the CEO at the Encephalitis Society. She's been with us for 20 years. I say us because I'm an ambassador and have been for probably about half that time. Ava has done a fantastic job. I'm not just saying that because she's here. I'm partly saying that because she's here. Uh, but she's seen the growth of the Encephalitis Society. Uh, she's seen staff more than double. She's seen income triple, I think, but she'll tell us about this later. And also she's won a ridiculous amount of awards. Now, I have to kind of look at my notes for this because uh, there are too many to remember, but I do believe she's been inspiring communicator of the year. So if you don't find her inspiring in this podcast, you know who to complain to. Top UK Social CEO 2019. Communication Campaign of the Year winner, Third Sector 2019. It's two for one year. Fundraising Technology of the Year Award 2018. Best Use of... Dig I can't even say it. Best use of digits. I'm going to try again. I've been ill. So this is why I can't speak. Best use of digital charity, um, 2018. Charity of the year, Avers, 2017. And my favourite, the Moulton and Norton Pride Award winner, 2015. Kids, this is the only one that matters. Yeah. That's that's as big as it gets, Simon. You know, when you win in Moulton, you, you win big. But I just, I need to say some of those, you know, awards that belong to my team, not, not to me. So Ava, it's great to have you here, or rather it's great for me to be here with you. Can, we're going to start, but can you give me a little introduction to that bust in the background? Most people have, when they're on doing podcasts, they choose books they've written, they choose something that makes them look impressive. So Ava has chosen what looks like lots of shampoo stuff in the background. Gin bottles, um, let me take you over then. Um, hang on, let's see. Yeah, give, us, give us a quick tour. Uh, so there we go. That's my Wi-Fi, my husband, my, do my dog that passed. Um, collection of gin bottles that light up. Um, don't know if you can see them. Uh, sorry, I think that's what I was mistaking for shampoo. Right. Far more interesting. So I can light them up. Yeah. You write about the books and things. I'm a big book lover, so lots of books. So yeah, this is my this is my study. My and that bust that's got is that the phrenology book? It is, okay. yeah. And for people who are a little bit ignorant like me, can you explain to us what phrenology is? Probably not, no, because I'm <laughs> Not very bright. I think it was when um, back in the olden days that people used to used to touch the bumps on your head and and tell you things about yourself. But you and I have probably had too many bumps on our head for anybody to want to tell us. Beautifully explained. And for those who don't know, when 
Ava says she's a bit thick. She's actually got a PhD, yeah, <laughs> which is fantastic. And her PhD, I think, is in uh, the narrative of encephalitis sufferers and how it um, affects recovery, etc., uh, etc. Et so she isn't thick, but it did take her quite a while to finish it. In fact, I do believe it took you as long to start and finish your PhD as you have been CEO of the Encephalitis Society. Is that right? Nine years? Not, not quite that long. Um, oh, yeah, no. OK, nine years. No, you're probably right, actually. There was, um, it was one of the hardest things to do. I mean, I feel for anybody that does a PhD and holds down a full-time job of any description, it's really tough. Um, and then at the last moment, um, so it was extended by a year because the university lost my PhD. <laughs> and uh, It had to be resubmitted and go through the process again. So there is an extra year on there that is not my fault. But yeah. Were you offended when they lost it? Yeah, I was. You panicked when they lost it. Yeah, I was in San Francisco and I received a, an email from them, which was completely um, all done in red capital type. It was four o'clock in the morning in San Francisco. I was there with Tom, Professor Tom Solomon, who many people will know. We were over there working together. And this came into my inbox and I couldn't believe it. And, and they were saying, you have to have it with us. I can't remember what day of the week it was, but it has, it has to be back with us by Friday or that's it and I, I just panicked so I phoned I didn't phone I skyped my husband covered in snot and tissues that was me not him um, crying down the Skype I also skyped Philippa Chapman who's our director of services because she's also my friend and I knew that she would help me and between the two of them <laughs> back in the UK they had my PhD reprinted they took it to be bound and literally, when I got back into the United Kingdom, my husband was waiting for me with the PhD in the boot and drove me to the university where I managed to submit it with hours to spare. But it was horrendous. Wow, that is amazing. So what's amazing also is you realise how, I know this isn't strictly to do with NCAP, but how snobby universities are, that they won't just let you email the PhD to them. You have to have it bound. Yeah, at that time, definitely. I don't know if things are different now. But I also found it very difficult as a, a student who had a full-time job. I didn't feel that the universities were set up for respecting that. You, you would, And I don't know how, I don't have children, so I don't know how people who have kids, which is an additional responsibility, cope. Because you would often get expectations of something to, you know, to come and present where your PhD is at, but with very little notice. And, you know, that's a day out of your working life. And what, when you're working, you know, trying to run an organisation like the Encephalitis Society, that's almost impossible to pivot on a sixpence like that. So at the time, I didn't feel that the university was very well set up for supporting people in my position who were older students who had full-time jobs. We couldn't just drop... If, if there are any university chancellors or vice chancellors or phd bosses out there get a grip that's all we've got to say about the matter ava how did you get involved in the encephalitis society yeah lots of people ask me that simon and i always feel a bit guilty because it really was just at the time it was a job that was advertised 
um, they had their first lottery grant had come through and um, it was working from home because they didn't have any premises and they basically wanted someone to come in and set up their support and information and education services with this grant. So I'd, um, I'd seen it advertised. It was advertised throughout the UK. So it was actually coincidental that I got the job and, and also lived in the north of England, which is where the society was originally based. Um, and so I went for the interview and they actually told the tale because they'd actually decided who the job was going to go to. It was going to go to someone else. And um, they were pretty sure of that. And then they say, well, you came in and just like, you know, we, there was no one else. We couldn't give the job to anybody else. So they gave it to me. So, so that was how it started. So, yeah, I was working from home 30 hours a week. Um, but obviously where we are now is very different. Uh, that's great. And did you not know anything about encephalitis or head injuries even at that point? Yeah, not really. I was working with people with learning disabilities um, and I was managing some um, uh, residential homes for people with learning disabilities. And one of our clients in those uh, homes uh, had had encephalitis actually from measles. So I was familiar with the condition. But what was interesting was that, you know, as, as I grew into the condition, I realised that there was many people who were in um, facilities for people with learning disabilities when actually they probably might have fared better if they'd have been in facilities for people with severe acquired brain injuries. So, so that was interesting. So I did know a little bit about it, but, but not a huge amount. And obviously did my research before I went for the interview. Um, but, you know, then when I got the job, everything changed within six months. It was just I, I can't even explain it. I started meeting people that had been affected by the condition and in some strange way, for some reason, I completely connected with people and, and, and I, I had this huge empathy. It was like coming home. It was like suddenly finding out where you were meant to be in the world. And it was just extraordinary. And I've never, I've never regretted it. I've never, I've never felt any different. It was as if I just was meant to be doing this. Um, so yeah, I just feel deeply grateful that I stumbled across the advert and that they chose me. What attracted you to the third sector in the first place? Yeah, I think, um, uh, I'm not, I'm not very good at rules. I'm can be a little bit of a rule breaker sometimes and certainly was much more in my youth. So I think sometimes it was difficult for me to fit in to um, some of the boxes that one was expected to fit into. And I think I felt I had a bit more autonomy, a bit more independence in the third sector. Um, and I also liked the creativity and the innovation often that, that went on in, in the third sector. And, and I've always found the sector or most of the sector, not, not all of it, um, but most of it quite solution focused. So not just saying, well, we can't, we can't do that because that isn't, that isn't what we do. Saying, well, actually, yeah, let's give that a go and let's see if it works. And if it doesn't, well, you know, we tried it. Um, what was the, I mean, you said that it was much smaller. Uh, do you say you were working from home when you started? Yeah, I was, yeah. What, what was it like? back then what was the I mean the encephalitis society it has been going it had only been going about three hi Jim sorry see you later um sorry Jimmy um what was it like what was the encephalitis society like back then it was obviously much smaller you were working at home it had only been going five years hadn't it 
Yeah, I think so. So it was originally started by a group of parents, as I understand it, in, in the northeast. Um, and then um, it was driven forward by uh, somebody called Elaine, who effectively acted as the, you know, effectively the founder of the organisation. And, and she had run it very much out of her kind of spare room. Um, so at that time, um, uh, I was working from home. Um, they, there was Elaine, there was myself, and I think there was an admin person at that point who was part-time. So there was kind of two and a half of us <laughs> doing things. And then it moved to a garage. <laughs> so, so occasionally I would uh, go into work in this garage if I wasn't working at home. Um, until a few years later, then we, we did get some office premises, but, but now we're in some quite prominent um, premises now, which I think we moved into around about 2013. So, so where was the, where was, to tell people who are listening, if we want to break into the house, where are you at home? Where was the garage and where did you move into? All in Moulton, which is a small market town in North Yorkshire. So the garage was in Moulton, our offices are in Moulton, and um, a few years ago I moved uh, to Moulton, <laughs> even though I'd said I never would, but I, but I did. I used to live in York. I so, think you'd never moved to Moulton. Um, Moulton's had a bit of a regeneration in recent years, um, and actually it's a much nicer place than it used to be. And Moulton, for people who are wondering, is halfway between York and Scarborough. Now, I don't mean to be funny, but, you know, you won that award for Moulton and Norton. Yeah. Uh, award. Why does Norton never get a shout? Well, that is a good question. Apparently, the, uh, you know, you'd have to ask some of my team. I don't really understand it. Apparently, there's some, there's some issue, some conflict between Moulton and Norton. Um, that uh, as a, somebody who's not local here, I'm not, I'm not au fait with, but apparently there's some, some issue. But don't you think for every time you talk about Moulton, maybe you should give Norton a quick mention as okay. well? Moulton and Norton, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I like to feel, come on Norton, we love you Norton. Where, where are you from? You don't sound very Yorkshire. Oh, uh, complicated history. You know I've got a complicated history, so we don't dig around in it too much. I, but I was born in Norfolk and then I was swiftly moved to Leeds until I was three and a half. Then I was raised in Falmouth in Cornwall. And then in my later teenage years, I bummed around Winchester, London, Southampton, until eventually settling back into York, back in Yorkshire. Blimey, that's the whole worst. And you say we don't dig around in your past much, yeah. which of we're going to respect. But I thought you were right tear away when you were young, so you alluded it to it earlier. Do you want to give us a quick example of your tear awayism? Probably not. It's probably not. Um, it's, you know, before the watershed, so. <laughs> yeah, is that, is that a definite? No, you can come back and say, well, actually, I did this, I did that. Or were, were, you, were you badly behaved? Were you, did you seem like the kind of girl that would go on to get a PhD? Well, some people obviously <laughs> thought so. Um, I, I lived in squats for a while. Um, most of my friends were punks and goths. Um, I do remember the Archbishop of Winchester Cathedral coming round to the squat once. I'm not a Catholic, so I don't really get this, so people need to forgive me, but apparently in the cathedrals, there's, there's a big like candle that I don't, apparently you never, is never 
it never goes out but obviously one of our squad had decided because that we'd had the electricity cut off by this stage that they nicked the candle and um so we had that as i do remember the archbishop of winchester cathedral coming around wanting his candle back but brilliant i mean brilliant yeah i do remember the police once saying to me that i need to i need to stop hanging around with these people. So maybe maybe some people saw something in me, I don't know. Were they right? No, I really liked those people, you know, and there, there was a reason. I think I've always been drawn to subcultures and subgroups because I think people join them because of need, because they're not understood in the communities in which they live. and. And we all needed each other in different ways because of the different things that had happened to us in our in our respective lives. And we came together and we were a comfort to each other and we needed each other at that time. So it's a period of my life that I've never I've never regretted. You know, and some of those people that I hung around with at the time were eventually lost to drugs. Some of them killed themselves, um, you know, and I feel deeply sad about that. So that and maybe that's part of why I do what I do, because I want to try and make communities for people in which they can exist comfortably. Um, you know, people call the Encephalitis Society a family, and that means the world to me. That's really important. It's not a family they would have cho chosen to be part of, but if we can offer people comfort and hope, then that's good. It shapes you, doesn't it, that early experience? I always think, I mean, I had, as you know, I had encephalitis as a kid and missed three years of school and was a, kind of a freak to not have died in that time and to have kept going. But I always think, maybe a bit like your experience in the teens, if you can get through it, I would never take it away. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't change, you know, people say, if they know that you you know you weren't the perfect well I don't think any of us are perfect people but anyway you know and they're like oh well do you have any regrets and actually no I don't because everything that I've done whether it's been good or bad has shaped me into the person that I am and I am not perfect but I'm I'm not I'm not a bad person I'm, I'm proud of who I am um and you know if if that person can make other people's lives a little bit better then then you know I'll go to my grave happy when I go um forward a bit to early days at the encephalitis society and um, what did working for the support service and talking to people affected by encephalitis how did that impact on you how did that change either you as a person or your attitude towards people with encephalitis i think the first word that comes to mind is kind of gratitude i learned to be more grateful because I suddenly, you know, I was working with people who were, as you know, Simon, you know, as a survivor, you're just carrying on with your life, you're, you're getting on, you know, with your every day. And then all of a sudden, something that you've never heard of comes and rips the rug right out from under your feet, under your family's feet. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, to answer your question, I learned about gratitude, I learned to be grateful for what I have. And I think I learned humility and and to be humbled um i learnt i guess i learnt that you know you can be trundling on in your life and the next minute it might not be there in in the same way and i think that's quite a scary thing um 
and I just felt for these people, you know, really good people. I mean, we hit, we're bombarded in the news at the moment, you know, with, it's always bad news. It's always bad people. And I think we, you know, we can become a bit deluded sometimes and, and a bit depressed by the fact that, that maybe, you know, the world is filled with bad people, but actually the world is probably largely filled with good people doing good things a lot of the time. And, um, yeah, I just really connected with these people who, who they were just in shock, you know, and at that time, because there was only me, I was running around the country. It was like fighting fires because there was no one else doing it. I mean, we don't do it now because I learned after a few years, it was completely unsustainable. But, you know, back in those days, we had people committing suicide, people self-harming because there was no safety net for them. They didn't understand what had happened to them. They didn't understand why they couldn't function in society in the way that they were before, even though they had now left hospital. And, and I was just running, running around the country, you know, trying to, I mean, I look back now and it's quite, it's quite horrifying. I mean, you asked me what I love about the third sector is the risks as well that we take, you know, meeting, meeting men in car parks at railway stations in the hopes that I could help them in some way, you know, thank God I'm still here. I <laughs> could have been, you know, kidnapped. Yeah, you know what so yeah, and I think you know we learned fairly quickly that that was an unsustainable way of delivering support to people. That it needed to be bigger than that, and I, I think you know hence the website and a lot of the digital work that we do. Were you surprised? I know the encephalitis, like everything, affects people in different ways. But were you surprised by what you saw in people who'd had it? How it had turned their lives upside down? And were there, were there kind of obvious common things between the people you talk to? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we, we, have, we see a lot of memory problems, a lot of memory disorders, and that's primarily because of the herpes simplex virus, which is the cold sore virus. So that was a common theme in some cases. But I think what surprised me the, the most was that no one had told them that brain injury was a consequence of encephalitis. So people just, they thought that they had mental health problems. They thought that they were developing psychiatric disorders because they had no idea that the problems that they were facing on a day-to-day -day basis were as a result of their brain having been injured. And, and simply imparting that piece of information would, you would see, you would witness this enormous relief wash over people when you're telling them, you know, you're trying, you're explaining to them why they're feeling like they're feeling. And, and that, you know, if I had a pound back in the day for everybody that said, but well, you're the first person that's explained this to me, you know, and there's a sense of relief that comes with that. And I think I learned this really quickly. So we had this enormous power, this enormous gift that we could help people understand and, and become, you know, a little less burdened by what was happening. And on top of that, we could, we could get them help. People weren't being referred to psychologists or neuropsychologists, that we could do that. That yes, life is different now, but it doesn't have to be a bad life and that we can get you some help um, to address some of the difficulties. And also they didn't know that there was other people like them. They, they, you know, they'd all had well-meaning neurologists who told them that they're one in a million, which they're not, by the way. But, you know, that they'd all had that. And so they weren't reaching out. And of course, back then, we didn't have the Internet in the way that we do now either. So they all thought that they were these isolated, um, you know, freaks for want of a better world. Um, 
and and suddenly realizing that there was other people out there brought a huge sense of hope to people so they would be like what so there's other people like me well hang on a minute then that means that means that there's there's hope for me and it was like yes and so what the society did was was join all of this up together to you know that's really what the support service ended up doing was was raising awareness of, of brain injury as a consequence of this connecting people so that they could talk to each other that's hugely empowering how did you go from there ava to being ceo was it that no one else would do it was it like god this is too much i'm not trundling all over the country well, um, I wasn't trundling all over the country by then. I mean, we'd managed to put more stuff into play. Well, actually, I do. And now I don't trundle all over the country. I trundle all over the world, as you well know. Um, well, the trustees decided to create the position um, of chief executive. We didn't have a chief executive position before, and they offered it to me in 2010, and, and I accepted it. Um, yeah, I thought it was going to be a huge challenge. Um, and it was, but not for the reasons that I expected. How, how different, in what ways was the job different and what were those challenges? What were the biggest challenges? Well, I thought I was gonna be worried about money. I thought that's what I'd be losing sleep over a lot of the time. But it, just as I became chief executive, I'd lined up um, some huge kind of donations that were due to come in. So actually we'd secured our future for kind of three years which was really nice because that freed me up to to deal with um, other things I, I was the infrastructure of the society needed a lot of work um, so digitally and um, IT wise we, we needed to put a, a lot of work into the society to make it um, more efficient more effective but also more stable um, and as I took over as chief executive, our founder, Elaine, left. And unfortunately, I think in some cases, people don't like change. And that was a big challenge for me, that some people didn't like the fact that she'd left the organization and that I'd taken over. And, and so that was, that was a big challenge for me. Um, so yeah, I think getting the infrastructure of the organisation right and then dealing with some people's reactions to me um, taking over as chief executive were probably the two uh, biggest challenges, if I'm honest. I've just realised I've been involved in the Encephalitis Society longer than you because Elaine stayed at our house one night. No. Yeah, she did. And I think she gave me a bollocking for not being involved. If oh. you know, sorry, if, you, if I freaked you out by taking off my jackets because I'm a bit hot and I'm just I'm getting all achy so I'm going to bring the chair over and sit over here so excuse the noise there I'm back this is the informal me so yeah Elaine stayed with us one night and I think I mean it was a tiny tiny society and she kind of made me understand a bit about myself that I'd never really understood right um, you know just kind of basic things that I thought were you know weirdnesses or failings in myself just like little things about inabilities to coordinate and like it's always really frustrated me for example as someone who plays football that I can't tell my left and right I know this isn't my left and that's my right but then if I turn it around like if I'm looking at you I can't tell if you're using your left or right foot 
Now that to me is bonkers, and she said it's really, really common. The Can you swim? Badly. Right, because that's Badly, a I, I could beforehand. Yeah, but the thing is, I had swimming lessons from the uh, because I worked for the Guardian, and the Guardian said, "I know what. Well, we're going to make people who do things slightly better." At what they do so you swim fairly regularly so i said yeah but i swim badly and they said okay we're going to take you to lessons so this wonderful guy called john taught me and he thought i was taking the piss when he'd say go like that and i'd go like that yeah and he'd say now go like that and i'd go like that and it may be an excuse but i do think that is a result of encephalitis and I don't remember, as a very young kid, having the appalling coordination that I have now. Right. It's definitely a thing, I can assure you. Thank you. God, that's a relief. Also, the weird thing is that in some ways I have quite good coordination. So I can do loads of kick-ups. But where it's bad is in copying. I can't copy reverse images. And I can't copy if someone says, so for example, if someone says, this is how you do that dance. Just no way. Not right. even worth going there. This isn't about me, it's about you. So, when you took over as CEO, did you have a kind of big vision? It's did you have a vision thing? Same, same vision that it is now, which is to provide, you know, as, as much support around the world as we possibly can for people who've been affected by this condition. Um, because we can and because we're good at what we do you know me and my team have got nearly a hundred years of experience in encephalitis between us um, that we can share with people and that's more than anybody else in in the world you know it I do a lot of work yeah I do a lot of work with you know Tom Solomon who's a professor in neurology and virology you you know Tom yeah, he's always um, getting me involved in the patient and public engagement elements of his research and one thing another. And there's a reason for that, because I've met more people with encephalitis, probably, than anybody else in the world. It's amazing. To have met so many people with encephalitis and to still be so positive and so energetic. But I mean, in a way, loads of people are, aren't they? I, th I, th I mean, I just think kind of... You know, I think encephalitis, often, often people with encephalitis, I think, say they come out a different person. But often, you know, I do think however hard it is for people, they don't think always I want to be the previous person. Yeah, it's and difficult. You know, they, they find their way at different times in, in their journey. And, uh, but, you know, you've been to enough of our events, you know, um, uh, these are amazing people and we have an amazing time at those events and you know i remember when i did the first ever retreat weekend away people were shocked and horrified by what i was going to do doctors were shaking their head at me and saying you don't you don't want to get 50 people with a brain injury together in in the same place it's going to be horrendous they're all going to be crying and, and it wasn't we I just never cry you know i never cry that's you're telling fibs now, aren't you? That's a little fib. It's a little. I never ever meet Ava without crying. It's really embarrassing, and I never go to an encephalitis society without crying. In fact, <laughs> all you need to do is mention it, and I burst out crying. You know, I mean, one well, of the amazing. Not the only things... man that I make cry, Simon. To be fair, 
You're not the only man I make cry. Yeah, I know, but for good reasons. But also, there is a, I think there's an incredible bond with people who've had encephalitis and at the society, which is one of the really powerful things in the society. Uh, I want to ask you about World Encephalitis Day because I remember years ago you'd say, oh, what, what is it February the 12th? 22nd. See, I was pretty near for someone who's had Encef. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, what's Encephalitis Day? What is that? World Encephalitis Day, come on, Ava. But actually it's become a thing, it's become massive. How do you do that? I honestly do not know. I mean, honestly, uh, my team cringe if I get come into the offices and go, I've had this idea, and everybody goes, oh no, and they like hide under their desks. But um, it was World Encephalitis Day. Was was um, yeah, it was a, it was an idea, and it was incredible what the team pulled off in that first year. It was 2014, I think. Was it 2014 that we started it? I think it was. Um, and absolutely incredible and then like you know a couple of years later we were like let's light up buildings around the world red <laughs> you have no idea how hard that is <laughs> you have an idea because you wanted to me to light up the guardian and most of okay. london i know exactly how hard it okay. is we, we lit up trafalgar um trafalgar square didn't we though in london amazing yeah it was amazing and what I think is phenomenal um, is that it really has become a thing. Yeah. I, thought, I thought it was bonkers when I first heard about it. But now, and you know, on social media, on Twitter, you will often get World Encephalitis Day trending. Yeah. Which is great, because when I was a kid, when I had encephalitis, no one knew what encef was. Right. You know. I'm so proud of you. Forward. Yeah? Yeah. The Encephalitis Society has just celebrated its 25th anniversary. It enjoyed a World Encephalitis Day campaign which reached nearly 50 million people. Amazing. Truly international encephalitis conference with delegates from 27 countries, is it? Yes. Amazing. You've just come back from the World Health Organization with Professor Tom. As a, what's his um, Twitter handle? The At Running Mad Prof. Running Mad Prof. Tom is, is wonderful. I'm sure lots of you will have seen him on TV. He's as bonkers as is brilliant. Yeah. Everything looking brilliant, everything in place, then you're hit by the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Now, not just us, but it's been disastrous for all charities, hasn't it? How, I mean, loads of charities are threatened by it. They're, I mean, it's an existential crisis for charities. Yeah. How... Have you coped? How are you coping? Um, how did we cope? Well, I think we coped because I have an incredible team and we pulled together very, very quickly. And because of those things that I was talking to you about, the challenges that I faced earlier on, such as the things like the infrastructure of the charity, we, we worked really hard on those things. And so having a good infrastructure, an amazing team, and also being very digitally capable because we're delivering services. Yeah, we might be in Moulton, you know, in North Yorkshire, but we're delivering services around the world. And, so we, and Moulton and Norton. Um, we were digitally very capable. And so, so having that great team, having a lot of digital capacity, um, 
meant and having a good infrastructure in the organization meant that we could pivot very quickly we also i have to say have a fantastic board as well um, who were very supportive and so we pivoted uh, within five days we'd migrated the whole team to home working everybody was set up at home we'd locked down our offices um, we had taken our existing budget for 2020 slash 21 our existing budget and our uh, strategy for that year and we created a COVID-19 budget and strategy based on projections that we were expecting which was to lose 50% of our income which it looks like we will be losing um, and so we quickly did that we set up COBRA meetings um, sorry to nick that word from our, our government but we set up COBRA meetings on a weekly basis at 5.30 every Wednesday evening with our board and senior team uh, so we, we actioned really quickly and the team worked really hard on, on, in particular, in two areas. How could we digitally support our members and our uh, beneficiaries better? How could we move um, a lot of the things that they were expecting to attend in person um, online? So we did that really quickly. Um, and we put out a series of appeals as well, which gener so generated some emergency funding for us. And then, of course, we've been applying for crisis funding. Um, and then on a personal level, I spoke to a number of our supporters, both corporate and um, high net worth, and asked them to help us. Um, and I'm pleased to say that most of them uh, did step up. We're still going to be, we're still looking at a projection of 50% loss of income, which is causing me sleepless nights. Um, but I couldn't be more proud of the team. We've learned so much. Um, we're delivering services now that we wouldn't have delivered before. So we're actually reaching more people around the world than, than we were before with our services. Um, so we are anxious, we are worried about the future. There's no doubt about that. But you know, it's not, it's not good leadership to bring everybody down. We've stayed in touch whilst everybody's been at home. We've done all sorts of crazy things to keep in touch with each other as a team. Um, <clears throat> my senior team have been very good at, at making sure uh, at the mental health and well-being of, of our team members, some of whom were living at, at, alone at home during lockdown in apartments with no gardens and you know so but everybody knows that it's been tough for everybody. Um, but my priority has to be the society and, and the team that work for it. And I couldn't be more proud of how we've operated. I don't think we're through the woods. Um, we're okay at the moment. We're still delivering services. Um, and we haven't touched our reserves yet. So that's a good thing. But I do feel for... furloughed? No, I didn't furlough anybody. Um, I didn't want to because they were all incredibly precious to me. Um, I've, I've been quite surprised by some of the levels of furloughing that I've heard about in the charity sector. And I'm going to sound controversial now, but you know, if you're furloughing 80% of your staff group, were you an efficient and effective machine before? Because I couldn't have furloughed 80% of my team. I needed each and every one of them to be delivering the support to our beneficiaries. And for those that weren't doing that, to be helping us to find income to cover us. We lost 80 of our fundraising activities in one go when we went into lockdown. That's a third of our income. 80 out of how many? 
Well, we look, so we had 80 projected between March and September, you know, marathons, people running, people doing community fundraising events. And of course, none of those have taken place and we can't set any, any new ones up because of social distancing and things at the moment. So, and that, that is a third of the society's income. And when you talk about losing half the income, so that would mean basically just over 500 grand, yeah? Yeah. Is that better than you expected or worse than you expected? It's about what I expected. I remember in that first week sitting down and, as I say, looking at our budget and, and predicting at what I call, we called a COVID-19 budget. And at the moment, I think we're probably on target for exactly that budget. And we were talking about an existential threat to charities. Yeah. Is this a threat to the encephalitis society? Yes. Yeah. And because I think none of us know what the future holds either. You know, I, I get money from corporates. If corporates aren't earning money, they can't give money to me. And then a third of our income is fundraising events that take place in people's communities and they can't exist. They can't uh, go on and we don't know when they'll be able to take place. And if people's investments are hit, then that means that another third of our income, which comes from grants and foundations, the grant making trusts and foundations, if they're not making any money on their investments, because everybody's investments plummeted in March when COVID hit, if they don't make any money on their capital, then they can't give money to charities. Do you well, think we had that that? experience in 2008 when, when we had, um, so we had two or three lean years around then. Um, and that was when we had, um, when the economy went down again in 2008. So I've seen it before. Do you think there's a chance if we were talking in a year's time, the encephalitis society may not exist? No, we will be here in a year's time of that, I'm sure. We have some money in investments, we have some reserves, and we certainly have enough to be here in a year's time. Whether we're talking in two years' time, I don't know, but that's my job um, to sort that out and to work that out. And the one thing that I do know about, about my team and my board is we are incredibly dynamic, incredibly passionate about what we do. And we're important right now, you know, the work I've been doing with Tom and Benedict Michael and various other people in our research world, you know, we just, we just released a paper that went out into the Lancet Psychiatry um, last week. Um, and that early data is suggesting that 5.6% of, of COVID-19 positive patients who've got neurological complications, 5.6% of them are encephalitis. Now we have more data than when we wrote that paper because obviously it takes a few weeks for these papers to be published. We have more data and looking at that data now, that has gone up to 13.2%, but I will say it's early data. We don't, you know, we don't know that that's the answer at the moment, but that has doubled in the space of a few weeks. So these are gonna be new encephalitis patients that we've got on top of what we already had. And that's why we're so important right now. We're working on multiple papers, multiple research grants, which unfortunately won't be held by the society. They'll be held by the universities that we're working with. But you know, it's people like Professor Solomon and our scientists and our researchers who are including us in all of that because we're important to them. And they want to ensure that we're here in a year, two years time. 
because they know that we make the world a difference and with their help we will be here i mean it's a it's a horrific figure you know one in 20 may have encephalitis as a side effect of covid <clears throat> is there a bit of you that also finds it and this is a strange way of putting it but is there a bit of you that finds it almost exciting as well because it puts you at the center of the covid thing i mean it's it's quite a human thing to even if something is terrible to actually say that this makes us more relevant this makes gives us a bigger role yeah Do I agree with you completely and I don't I don't think I find it exciting I think what I felt was a sense of relief was that I had something that I could grasp onto and say we are relevant and this is why you have to save us yeah it gives you yeah I think exciting is is the wrong word you'd have to be quite cynical to find it exciting but in a way it's like journalism when something terrible happens Piers Morgan admitted it the other day. He said, I've been really excited by COVID. And of course he felt bad. Mm. The sense of relevance and purpose intensifies. Mm. And for you, you are kind of at the centre of the debate mm. in a way that you might not have been before. And also, if we're talking about existential threats, does it not mean that the fact that encephalitis is so common, um, side effect, consequence of COVID, mean that you're likely to get more grant money? Well, that's part of the case for support that we're using. You know, the bottom line is, the part of the reason why I'm relieved, I'm not relieved because, because we're involved in COVID and I'm not relieved because there's more encephalitis cases. The bottom line is COVID or not, encephalitis wasn't gonna go away. Whilst ever we have immune systems and infections circulating in our communities, um, you know, encephalitis will always be here. So my relief came from the fact that I had a hook on which I could make us more relevant. You know, I wasn't relieved for any other reason, you know. But, and you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, some people who weren't listening to us or supporting us before might realize now you know, this isn't going to be the only global pandemic, you know, and if people had looked at things like SARS and MERS when they occurred in more detail, you know, when they occurred, uh, uh, then we might not be where we are today, you know. We know, we know there's always going to be a global pandemic around, around the corner. And I think we, we sit back on our laurels sometimes and go, well, probably not going to happen in my lifetime, but do you know, hey, what it did? <clears throat> and we and we weren't for it. I think over the next few weeks, it's funny that we're talking today. I think it might have just been last night or the last couple of days that I heard on the news people talking about COVID in terms of encephalitis. I think people who haven't had first-hand experience of encephalitis may start to understand what it is and learn about it. Yeah. I know, and it's a shame, isn't it, that, you know, it's had to take this to, to make people realise that we're relevant as an organisation. Yeah, I mean, COVID is just an appalling tragedy and encephalitis is a horrible, horrible thing. 
Um, I want to ask you about you. You know, you're no. an ambitious woman. I thought we'd done that. <laughs> well, I want to ask you more about you. You've okay. been here 20 years. If I come back in 20 years' time, are you going to be here with your red hair, slightly kind of more purpley, uh, purple rinse, but still CEOing the Encephalitis Society? Or are you going to sod off to a bigger charity? Well, I'm too old to be here probably in 20 years' time anyway. So How old are you now? I am going to be 54 this year. Good youth. <laughs> So I pro I'm sure I definitely won't be the CEO of the society when I'm 74, 75. I'm hoping that I'm on a cruise ship drinking plenty of wine and having a knees up basically and enjoying my life. I've got a really important question to ask about this because you're talking about drinking wine mm. and having a knees up on a cruise, which personally, I, 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 you know, my particularly after the pandemic, I wouldn't fancy being on a cruise, but you are a wine drinker. What's with all the gin bottles? Well, they, I got, okay, so, you know, when I, I'm in London a lot of the time, normally, um, and gin bottles are pretty. I don't, I do, I've got a bottle of gin in the cupboard, but it'll probably be in there this time next year. Um, uh, so I stay at the Royal Society of Medicine, as you well know. I think we've probably met each other there and various things before. And the bartenders, um, each time I go in, I choose a different bottle. And when they finish that bottle, they save it for me. And then I put it in my suitcase and bring it back to Yorkshire. Well, that's nice. And who, who, electric, who electrifies it for you? Me. I put the, you can buy the little light things online and I, I put them in. So... This is very important because all, all, all members of the Encephalitis Society want to know about Ava's electrified gin bottles. Are the, are the bulbs on the outside or the inside? Uh, on the inside. Yeah, you poke them through the top and then they have like um, at the end of the lights. It's like a cork that you would normally put in the top of a bottle, but it has it's plastic and it has a light switch on it. So you put the lights in and then the cork thing just sits in the top of the bottle and then you just flick the... Uh, lights on and off and it's pretty you heard it here first kids who would have thought from this podcast that you would have found out how to electrify your own gin bottles right. ladies and gentlemen ava um so 20 years time you, you you don't want to be here but i'm going to take you back 20 years as well what would the ava of today tell the ava of 20 years ago or even 40 years ago Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. What would I tell myself? What do you think you've learned about yourself? That I'm strong, that I'm resilient. And back in the day, I didn't. I, I was too reliant upon men, probably, to make me feel good about myself. And I didn't need to do that. Always um, good idea. Pardon? Always a bad idea. Never yeah. So maybe to believe in myself. And sometimes I think it's difficult when we're in pain. I think we forget that it's temporary. You, the bad things that happen to us are usually temporary in some way. You know, either they stop, either the badness stops or, um, or we find a, a better way to cope with it or we find something else in our life. So knowing that everything is temporary sometimes can be a good thing. But yeah, to believe in myself, be confident. Um, yeah. 
That's great and great. It's a great message to yourself and it's a great message to all of us. But we're, we're reaching the end now. So having gone through Ava's life, having gone through the electricity of gin bottles, we're now going to briefly turn into Desert Island Ava. Oh, God. I yeah. thought you might do this. Yeah. Okay, briefly on Desert Island Ava. What, what would you... We're going to give you three luxuries to take okay. your Desert Island. Uh, wine. Wine. Books. Can I take a person? <laughs> no, because it's a desert island. You can tell me who you take and then I'll ban it. Okay, I, so wine, books and I would take John Lennon. Ava, John Lennon's dead. I know, but... I remember the day he died. I was in Plymouth on a school trip the day he died. And I remember, you remember back in the day, we used to have newspaper sellers would stand on street corners and shout out something that nobody ever knew what they were saying. And I remember that's how I found out he died. It was a defining moment of my life. I think it's such a great idea. And actually, because he is dead, I'm going to allow you to take him. Thank you. So Desert Island Ava, You've got a favourite film to take with you to your desert island. Um, I, I always find it really difficult having favourite films, but the film that defined my life was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Appropriate. Yeah. And so great. I didn't know that stuff happened like that. There was two, well, in fact, I watched Midnight Express around the same time and I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and I immediately signed up for Amnesty International and decided that 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 lobotomies should be banned. <laughs> There's not much to say to that. I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> you know, you say some controversial things in your time, but that isn't one of them. Okay. There's well, more that I could you, tell you, you about. Want that. To over the cookies nest. Unfortunately, a bit of bad news. No plugs on the desert island. You won't be able to watch it. <sighs> okay. You can take a favourite book there. Um, well, now, I thought you might do this Desert Island disc thing with me, so I brought something. I had to go and hunt them down upstairs before this podcast. Um, there were three books that defined my life, and I, I know which one I'd probably take with me again. Um, but I've already told you about, this is how old they are. These are the original ones I had. So that's the Midnight Express one that I bought. God knows back I'm when. I directed it. It's so yellow, right? Who wrote that? Let's have a look. Billy Hayes with William Hoffer. So Billy Hayes was his name, wasn't it? That was the guy. The next book that I read, that this is, I might take this with me, that totally changed my life was this. John yeah. McCarthy and Jill Morrell. And then I, I, and then I met this guy and read all of his books. And so they were, they were the books that, that, yeah. So like Midnight Express, these books and, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest were just life defining because I didn't know that these things happened to people. I didn't know that we did these things to people. And I don't know, just they ignite a fire in me. Ava, 
I'm only going to let you take one book, so you can take a third of each book. Okay. Yeah, is that yeah. fair? Um, I know you say you won't be here in 20 years' time at the NCAF Society. I think we'd be quite happy to have you. Ava Reeson, thank you so much for talking to me for the podcast. It's been great and it's been informative and you've brought all the enthusiasm that you bring to the NCAF Society over the years. I think you brought to this podcast, so thanks loads. Oh, thank you, Simon. You know I love you. You're such a great guy. say that when I'm interviewing you. Um, well, for anybody who's, you know, enjoyed the podcast, if anybody can uh, support our work, then go to encephalitis.info forward slash donate. Or if you're interested in what we do, go to encephalitis.info. And um, yeah, um, stay safe, everybody. And make sure you keep washing your hands. Keep washing your hands. Can I say one thing? If you're a billionaire, please donate to the Encephalitis Society. If you're not a billionaire, which is quite a high chance, if you know any billionaires, get them over to watch the podcast, get them to donate. And Richard Branson, you know where you are. We're waiting for you. Totally. And Bill Gates, right? If anybody knows Bill Gates, get him to watch this. Gatesy, we want you. I'm the Amazon fella. (laughs) Yes. Yeah? I don't know. They're all blokes. Um, Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, And uh, the Netflix one. We'll have you as well. Yeah, definitely. Right, that's it. We saved. Done.